One of the great American questions that is being asked often today is, what does it mean to be a hero? It's a question that many have asked across countless career spectrums. That is, whether they're a psychologist or educator, a journalist, philosopher, novelist, or even historian. What is a hero, they ask. Filmmakers and marketers know just how obsessed we are with this question and have made a multi-billion dollar industry out of asking it to us over and over again. And one person who became particularly famous for asking this question in the 20th century was a man named Joseph Campbell. Perhaps you've heard that name before. Now, Joseph Campbell was a professor, writer, and a noted skeptic of religion. And in 1949, he published a book with a pop, it was a rather popular book with the title, The Hero with a Thousand Faces. Time Magazine says it's one of the most influential books of the 20th century. And in it, he argues that all heroes, as we might call them, whether it's Hercules or Osiris, whether it's Moses or Buddha or yes, even Jesus, Why is it that they have such similar characteristics because perhaps, and this is the thesis of his book, that they're all cut from the same mythological cloth? In other words, that they're just a a story that humanity tends to tell over and over and over again, and it just takes on the particular features of the culture in which that particular character is told. And his thesis has since convinced countless people to shrug off any and all religious belief as just a bygone uh, human superstition. Now, many critics of Christianity have cited Campbell in their arguments against the claims of our faith. They might say to us, don't you understand? Sure, Jesus is an interesting literary character, but that's all he is. He's no different than Superman or King Arthur. He may be inspirational or maybe interesting, but you just can't take him so seriously. And even though some of these skeptics, probably many of them at this point, I would imagine, are willing to concede that Jesus, contrary to some of these people we've just listed, is an actual historical person, they usually only chalk him up to maybe as if he were an ancient Abraham Lincoln or Martin Luther King Jr., a really good person. But nevertheless, that's all he really was. Now, as Christians, in a world that is awash with this kind of thing, you can find these arguments all over social media. People make YouTube videos about it. I mean, it's everywhere. As Christians, what are we to do with this kind of thinking? Is Jesus merely a a hero as the world conceives of heroes? Maybe he's somebody that inspires us to our greater selves, but all he is is an inspirational character. Well, believe it or not, we're not the first people to have tough questions to answer like this. In fact, I would say that Paul in his letter to the Philippians is writing to this little congregation because they are facing some of those same questions from their culture. But Paul writes to this congregation convinced that they can actually unite around the person, around the work, around the message of Jesus Christ. 
because he's not just some cutesy monomyth. Instead, surprisingly, he's the center of all of reality. That's what Paul tells us. Now, let me remind us where we've been coming from. It's, uh, we've been in Philippians for a little over a month now. Now, up until this point, Paul has been expressing his joy and gratitude to this congregation, to this godly local church. In chapter 1, he thanks God for how they've helped him bear the message of Jesus Christ. How they've been partners of the Gospel, he calls them. And in chapter 2, he's encouraging them, based on that reality, that they've worked together well, that God has commissioned them all together. He's encouraging them, although they are facing so many pressures, although they're suffering so many temptations, he is encouraging them to stay together because of this message. And even more to the point, because of this person. But, they can only do that. They can only remain united if they first remain humble. And so he goes on to tell them to lift one another up. To not count your own life and interests and business as more important than your brother or sister in Christ. But instead, look to everyone else as if their life, what's going on with them, is more important than yours. And he tells them this because this is exactly how Jesus has interacted with them first. Coming in surprising humility to love these people. And so Paul is reminding them and us to be like Christ, to humble ourselves, and to build one another up. And so, to that end, in our passage today, Paul does something I think almost unbelievable. A little surprising if you consider the stakes of what's happening here. Instead of trying to rationalize with these Christians, instead of them giving 12 rules for how to live your life, as popular scholars today now do, instead of giving them um, a, a bunch of logical reasons for why they need to do what he do, what they they do what they need to do. Instead, he writes to them the lyrics of a song. Instead, instead of trying to mandate something or give them a rule book to to rile them up, he recites a poem. I think that's kind of interesting. And so in these verses today, we see a song. We see at the, at the heart of the, the message to the Philippians, the theological truth that is given to us at the core of this message is written in melody. Now, this brings to my mind, at least, uh, a question that maybe that we can think about together. Why is it, think about this, why is it that when we get together as a group, one of the things we do is we sing. We make music together. When you go to a PTA meeting or a city council meeting or you uh, attend some class somewhere, you don't sing together when you do that. That would feel strange. And yet here we come in this formal setting and one of the things we do is sing together. Is it because we're all 
excellent musicians trying to show off our talent for one another? Certainly not. If you could hear me going off key this morning trying to go along, you certainly wouldn't think that. No, we sing together because we remind one another of the truth of the Gospel in one of the most memorable ways possible through singing. David Zoll, who's a music critic and a Christian, says that music is not only a way for us to express our emotions, it's a way that we find our identity. Now think about this from a Christian perspective. This is so true of hymns and praise songs, is it not? When we were little children, one of the first ways we encounter this Lord of ours is through singing, Jesus loves me. And then as we come to to faith, amazing grace seems to take on a whole new level of meaning, doesn't it? And when life gets discouraging and hard, we can confidently sing, it is well with my soul. And perhaps one day, when we're at the end of our life, and we're we're, we're facing the grave, we can sing with joy, abide with me. See, songs help us understand who we are, and Christian songs help us understand who we are in Christ. Something about lyrics communicate truth to us, to our core. This Researchers are doing experiments on this all the time. People with dementia and Alzheimer's, they seem to lose who they were as a person. Whoever you knew them to be, it seems gone. But they start listening to music that they grew up with, songs that they're familiar with, and suddenly it seems like their old self comes back. Something about the way that God designed human beings, music is so intricately meaningful. It's such a powerful vehicle for truth-telling. Something about songs and poems just stick with us as people even when everything else seems to have left us. This is why Paul tells the the Christians at Ephesus to not sin, but instead, he says, speak to one another in psalms, in hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making music with your heart to the Lord. That's how he encourages Christians to worship. This is why I believe that Paul communicates, I think, what's the single most important truth of this entire book. He communicates it to us in the form of a song. Because he wants Christ Jesus to be known, to be remembered by us in an unforgettable way. And this is how these Christians, you and I included, can have a unified mind and have an, a, this same adopted attitude that we have because of Jesus Christ. Now, he wants these people, and he wants us to have this deep in their soul. He wants them to be able to, to hum this truth, to whistle it, to sing it, to, to chant it, to speak it. The attitude of Christ, who was a slave stripped of all glory, and yet what that truly reveals is that He is the King of creation, robed in glory again. Paul shows us, in other words, something more than a hero. He shows us our God with us. Now verses 6-11 through comprises what many have called 
the hymn of Christ. Now this is perhaps one of the earliest praise songs, one of the earliest hymns that was ever written in praise of Jesus in human history. Now we don't know for sure if this is Paul, something he wrote himself for this letter, or if this was a song that was kind of already in circulation within some of these churches in this area. Something they may have recognized. We don't really know where it originated, but regardless, Paul makes this song the central truth of his letter and the basis around which everything else in the letter revolves. So if you understand this, if you see this as the core truth, the singular meaning of the text, then everything else that we're given comes into full context. How can Paul find joy while being incarcerated? Because this song rings true. How can the Philippians continue to do good work and and love others more than themselves? Well, because this song rings true. And how can we trust that God will complete the work that He's begun in us? It's because, friends, this song still rings true. So what truth, indeed, do we learn from this song? Well, first, it tells us of Jesus. Jesus, to the world's eyes, who was just a poor Jewish builder from Nazareth with a part-time job as a rabbi, this Jesus, the song tells us, is uniquely God. The person, this person rather, pre-existed any created thing in the universe by existing in the form of God. Now that phrase, in the form of God, means that Jesus' essence, His substance, His very being, always was and always is God. He is the God who speaks the world into created order in Genesis 1. And He's also the Word of God who exist eternally alongside the Father and the Spirit in John 1. He is the one that walks with Adam and Eve in the cool of the day, who eats with Abraham under an old oak tree, who wrestles with Jacob all night by a river, who speaks to Moses in a desert bush that's burning and on fire, who confronts Joshua on the outskirts of a battlefield, who delivers Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego out of the furnace of a pagan king. This is the Son of God before He took on human flesh of the God-man. He is holy and glorious and all-powerful and almighty, and yet, Paul tells us, he doesn't cling to that majesty. He doesn't use it to exploit His power over us, even though He would have every right to. Jesus is not like the first Adam that greedily stretches His fingers towards deity. Instead, He is the second Adam who stretches His arms wide open on a cross, embracing a sinful humanity. He relinquishes His dignity and status as God. Think about that, Christian. He surrenders His divine privileges for something else. 
what? Verse 7 tells us. Instead, He emptied Himself by assuming the form of a servant, taking on the likeness of humanity, of a man. Now herein lies a truth that really is too amazing for simple, simple explanation. We can't really easily know what it means when Paul says that Christ emptied Himself. Maybe we can take a stab at the meaning, but it's a mystery beyond our knowing. Christians have wrestled with this teaching for centuries, trying to understand what the text is saying. Now, I believe the best way to understand the term emptying himself, and there's probably many ways, and this is maybe just scratching the surface, I think it means that in addition to the royal divine status that Jesus enjoys as the eternal Son of God, He emptied Himself by also adding something to His divinity, and that is the humiliating status of a slave. Although He was king, He yet also became a slave. He emptied Himself of just being the king by also taking on this lowly status for us. And He took on the form of a slave, Paul tells us, by being born in the likeness and image of humanity. He became, the theological word is incarnated. That simply means to be wrapped in the finite, limited flesh of a human being. That is something I still don't think we really can imagine. At Christmas time, we like to say, well, God came down and He's a little baby. But God came down and became a little baby. The Creator becomes part of His creation. He shows His power by becoming completely powerless. How can we make sense of that? He reveals His eternal glory by hiding it in skin and bone and blood and breath. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 8-9, I think a good maybe summary of this. He says, though He was rich for your sake, for our sake, He became poor so that by His poverty, you might become rich. He was stripped of all His heavenly glory and entered a world with the same naked vulnerability that we all enter into it with. Except He had not a fleck of sin in His character, in His person. But that's not the depth of His humility. Because in verse 8, Paul tells us he humbled himself even further by becoming obedient to the point of death. Even death on a cross. The mystery of Christ's humility doesn't end when he becomes a lowly man who gets hungry for bread in the wilderness. 
or who falls asleep exhausted on a boat, or who cries in sadness and anger when, when his friend dies, or who washes the filthy, disgusting, smelly feet of his disciples, some of whom are about to use those clean feet to run away from him in his hour of need. Or even when he anxiously sweats blood in a garden knowing Quite literally, the weight of the world is about to be put on his shoulders. That's not the depth of his humility. Almost unfathomably, he humbles himself willingly even further. His humiliation is not complete until he, by the will of the Father and the power of the Spirit, submits himself to death on a cross. The ever-living God-man dies. Make no mistake, it is no mere human that dies on this gruesome cross. It is Jesus, the God-man, who holds both natures, divine and human, together in Himself. We with Charles Wesley and the Apostle Paul before him sing, Amazing Love! How can it be that Thou, my God, shouldst die for me? Church, hear this good word this morning. This Jesus sits on the throne today for His glory and for your good. He came to this seat, however, in the hardest way possible. He could have sat back and done as he wished, and never done a a single thing that would be humiliating or embarrassing or self-giving or self-empty. He could have done that. But instead, he chose this way to hang like a piece of rotting meat on an ancient torture device, completely naked and abandoned and mocked. The God who created everything being put to death in such a shameful way. What an unthinkable shame on the human race that we would do this to the Lord of glory. Whether our background is like the pagan Romans or the religious Jewish people. It doesn't matter. They all conspired. We would all conspire to put Him to death to have our own way, to be the lords of our own life, to be our own kings and queens. And while the Romans were beating him and stripping him and gambling away his clothes and howling in laughter at the thought of his being king, and while the thieves on either side of him, actually guilty criminals, deserving to be there, reviled him, and while the, the, the passing stranger shook their heads in disgust and shouted, save yourself, before chuckling and entering the city. When the churchgoers of the day, the chief priests, the theologians, the pastors mocked him for being this so-called Son of God, come down from the cross if you are who you say you are. And most fearfully of all, when the wrath of God ground his knuckles into this completely sinless Savior. 
How do we even begin to deal with that? Verse 9 will help us. For this reason, for that reason we just heard, God highly exalted Him. Because He humbled Himself, God exalted Him high and gave Him a name and a status and a position and a dignity that is above every other name and status and position and dignity. The humiliating murder of the Son of God became the very grounds by which the Father exalted Him again. Jesus proved to us that He truly is God, the God who loves us to death and back by being crucified for us, buried for us, and risen again to new life. And so as He was resurrected back to life and given a name that is above every name, we who were under the power of sin and hell and Satan and death might hope through faith in Him, through His exalted name, not ours, through His good work, not ours, through His faithfulness, not ours, that we too might be raised from the grave. Do you know that in the Old Testament, to know and speak a God's name was to invoke its power? And so, we kind of get glimpses of how the ancients thought of this. For instance, when we look at the story of Jacob, when he is wrestling with this stranger all night by the river Jabbok, only to, to, to realize that this is no mere mortal He's tussling with. And so Jacob, seeing that this is no ordinary man, schemed to get power over this divine being, whoever he may be. I'm not sure that Jacob really knew by saying, what's your name? Who are you? So he could invoke power. And... But it's not Jacob that names God in this story. Or think about Moses. How he's in the, the wilderness and a, a burning bush that's burning and yet not consumed, speaks to him. And he comes over and takes off his sandals for he's on holy ground and this otherworldly presence somehow alive in this, this shrubby little tree tells him to go and to be his spokesperson for the people of Israel. And Moses, we remember the story well, who's, ah, well, <laughs> hedging his bets at every turn. Ask, well, who am I supposed to tell Pharaoh sent me? And you remember the response because it's such a shocking thunderclap of truth that echoes throughout all time. The voice says, I am who I am. The Lord, the God of your ancestors, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. That is my name. I am who I am. And that is my name forever. And this is how I will be remembered in every generation. So it's not Moses who names God either. Instead, we see here that it is God who 
names Himself. At the baptism of Jesus, we see this this Christ preparing for public ministry, identifying with the sinful people, preaching the coming kingdom of God. And as He emerges from these waters in the River Jordan, the Spirit of God descends and the voice of the Father speaks, This is My beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. And Jesus Himself claims this title a little later when He says before all of Israel, before Abraham was, I am. The God who names Himself. Jesus was with the Father and the Spirit from time immemorial. And this God together is the One that is I am who I am. Yahweh. Jehovah. Adonai. He is God and He is exalted over all. And in verse 10-11, through we read, for this reason, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven on earth, and even under the earth. Every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So Paul concludes by showing us that while Jesus' divine name is Lord, I am who I am, that is Jesus' divine name, yet still His name is Yeshua. It's Jesus. It's a human name, which means God will save His people from their sins. And He holds both of those identities in Himself. That's who He is. He's the Sovereign Lord who rules and reigns over all, who bows the knee to no one, who confesses uh, His submission to no one. And indivisibly, at the same time, He's also this gentle and lowly Jesus who bids us to come. Who redeems and reconciles all who would come to Him. That's who He is. He's the one to whom Isaiah 45, 22-23 alludes. Turn to Me! And be saved, all the ends of the earth. For I am God and there is no other. By Myself, by My name I have sworn. Truth has gone from My mouth. A word that will not be revoked. Every knee will bow to Me. And every tongue will swear allegiance. The reality of this person, of this Jesus, folks, is that He is either the Savior of those who will turn and repentant and obedient hearts of faith, or He is the judge of those who will not. Every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess. But some won't be bowing to the meek and mild Jesus of the Gospels. Some instead will be stripped bare as they bow to the Jesus that we see in Revelation. Robed in terrifying, holy, righteous indignation. That same Jesus 
who is clothed in a golden sash, hair burning like vibrant snow, eyes like a blazing fire, feet shining like burnished bronze, who speaks and it sounds like the roaring of the oceans and whose words pierce like a steel sword. That is the Jesus to whom some will bow. And that is the Jesus to which we will one day yet see. And Lord, have mercy on us when we do. We have no idea (laughs) the holy locomotive that is barreling towards us right now. If we respond like the people of the Scriptures, we will fall like dead men and women, terrified at pure, unadulterated, omnipotent holiness. But friends, even that Jesus has one last word for us. And it's this. Don't be afraid. Do not be afraid. Because I am the first and I am the last. I am the living one. I was dead, but look, I'm alive forever and ever. And I hold the keys of death and of hell. Do not be afraid. Fear not, friends. We will bow the knee, I believe, and holy fear but He will lift up our face to look into His. And He will make His face shine upon ours forever. He'll bless us and keep us and be gracious to us forever and ever and ever. And folks, this is the hymn of Christ. Did you notice how much Scripture we covered this morning? how we didn't just stick in Philippians, but went all over the Bible. Because reading this passage takes us through the whole story of the Bible together. It starts with the Son's pre-existence as as the second person of the Trinity. And then it takes us to His mysterious incarnation as an infant. His death as the Messiah, His resurrection as the Savior, and His ascension and return to us as the King over all creation. It shows us His humble and willing downward spiral into human history and how He rescues us. And then it shows us that He defeats death by His resurrection and seals our salvation in only Himself. Now at the beginning of the sermon, we ask this famous American question, what does it mean to be a hero? Well, in truth, there's not really one single answer to that question because some heroes are real, some are imaginary, some heroes deserve the laud, some heroes don't deserve it. But all we instantly recognize and celebrate as heroes. They all have some similar characteristics. But here's the truth about Jesus. Beautiful truth. He came into our world not to live as a hero and be admired, but to suffer and die as a villain for us instead. He had not one ounce of sin, nothing wrong with Him, and we chased Him unto a cross and fastened Him there as if He were the worst 
human being to have ever lived. And yet this was God's plan to take all of our sin and shame and deal away with it forever. The category of hero is totally inadequate. It doesn't fit here because he is something infinitely more than that. Contrary to what Joseph Campbell thinks. He's the eternal Son, and yet He's the human Messiah. He is our God with us. And Christians, it's to this Jesus alone we sing and we confess this truth of who He is, our God with us. Let's pray. Lord Jesus Christ, gentle and lowly of heart, hear us. From the desire of being esteemed, Lord, deliver us. From the fear of being humiliated, save us. Make it so that we love others well. Help us to be obedient in that, and in doing so, that we might glorify You. And we pray these things in Your name, in the name of Jesus, who with the Father and the Spirit now lives and reigns as one God for us now and forever. It's in Christ we pray. Amen.